Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to say hello to Chuck Wally and Mae Wilkinson, who are on our simultaneous tweet chat. And um, I'm very excited, actually, about tonight's interview. It's something that's really important. And, um, you know, I think that sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And the recent op-ed in the New York Times by Dr. Shrouth, um, who's a psychologist at the University of Minnesota, um, has created a stir over the use of stimulants to treat children with ADHD. And I usually give a short intro and go right into it, but tonight I'm going to ask you to indulge me because I do have a few things I want to say uh, before I bring on my guest. You know, I personally always try to find the positive in what comes along. And positive is going to come out of the controversy over this because there are issues, there are problems with it. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, kind of, it's controversies like this that really can bring out respectful discussions. But unfortunately, they can also cause radical thinking. Um, and it, it leads to misinformation. So today, I was sent a tweet uh, by someone, and they said that giving your child stimulants is nothing short of child abuse. Parents need to research. That did not sit well with me. So to be clear, we do research. We research hours and hours. We stay up nights until the sun comes up. We have more bookmarks on our computers in a day than most people have in a year. And it really is no one's place if they have not walked in our shoes to pass judgment and create fear in parents dealing with unimaginable circumstances and these parents that are just starting out on this journey. It's just not acceptable. And I want to say that I agree that medications are not always the first-line treatment for kids, especially those with mild behavioral issues or attention issues. But for those that are significantly impaired, unable to learn, fit in, socially interact, have difficulties even having relationships, they have such a, pure, a poor quality of life that medications can be life-changing. And we know, as parents, these medications are not a cure. They are not for every child. These medications are life-saving for some, literally, with mental illness. And I agree with some of the things that Dr. Schropp wrote, and we need better long-term research. And These medications should not be the first line. It's the tone of parental blame that I really took issue with. And, um, you know, I think that we're going to discuss a lot of this tonight. And, you know, we, we just really need to understand that parents are informed. We are not narrow-minded. You know, it's suggested that we are so desperate and uninformed as to not be aware of the importance of proactive and positive parenting, um, and that we're so narrow-minded that we do not investigate other possible reasons, and it couldn't be further from the truth. So it's a personal decision. It's a very difficult decision, and um, I myself am not pro-medication or anti-medication, but I am absolutely pro-respect and compassion, and, you know, the refrigerator mom theory was long put to rest, and let's not take steps backwards. Let's just keep going forwards. And I'm not the only one who's, um, you know, has strong feelings about this. Many renowned ADHD experts have been very outspoken, um, as have the Mental Health Foundation. One um, expert is Dr. Ned Holloway, who uh, we had hoped was going to be able to join us tonight, but he couldn't, and he is the author of Driven to Distraction. He weighed in on this debate, and I'll quote something that he wrote. While I wince at the inflammatory rhetoric of Dr. Schroff's article, I actually agree with much of what he had to say. 
It is with his scare tactics and wrong-headed assumptions that I take issue. He also went on to say he states that 19 out of 20 parents that go to his office are adamantly opposed to using medications, and only after they understand the medical facts do they change their minds. I think Dr. Halliwell put it best as he agreed with the article stating, over time, medication becomes a less important force in a child's improvement, and human connections become even more powerful. Love is our most powerful and underprescribed medication. It is free and infinite in supply, and doctors must definitely prescribe it more. To me, sometimes love is making very hard decisions to give our children a chance in life. And tonight, I have Dr. Charles Parker back, and I am so excited. He is the author of New ADHD Medication Rules, and um, he's going to talk to us tonight about the article, um, try to explain what they were discussing with the research, and really discuss with us the problems with um, prescribing and, um, you know, the benefits of prescribing. So, Dr. Parker, Parker, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Marianne. I appreciate it. So, what is your take on all of this? Well, you know, first of all, I think we got to have to start with really the big picture. Where are we coming from? Why is this... Uh, uh, conversation going so awry? Why are the polemics so strong on the situation? And why are trained individuals coming up and still throwing these, these dispersions around about medications are not uh, properly used? Uh, most of the time, the medications are properly used. We do see in our practice, in multiple second opinion interviews, that there are problems out there. And uh, I think what he's doing is he's highlighting the fact that problems do exist. And I wanted to compliment you and in your interview with Dr. Alan Francis talking about the DSM-5 because I thought you uh, the discussion that you folks had regarding the confusion, regarding basic uh, concepts like the diagnosis and even speaking very specifically about the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder but uh, elaborating further into depression and other diagnostic categories, it's so confusing that the DSM-5, and he, he said himself, if you think it's the new Bible, you know, you will not be saved because it's confusing. So what happens yeah. when you have a confusion like that is people then get into discussions which really have very little merit because there's no evidence. They're not using evidence for the discussion. They're just, uh, you know, quoting in op-ed pieces, opinions based on uh, really hearsay. And, you know, I think one of the problems is that if you're not living this life, um, if you are not, if you do not have a child, family member, if you are not, um, um, you know, a doctor, psychiatrist, you really are unaware of the dimensional aspect of these kids. You know, autism is a spectrum, but all of these mental illnesses are so dimensional. And it's not cut and dry. It's not easy. Well, that that is so true. I think the biggest uh, one of the, the same thing happened in another New York Times piece recently. It wasn't too too far uh, back where someone came in, it was another PhD, nothing against PhDs. I love them. My partner's a PhD. But the issue is talking about something you don't know anything about. I mean, it's sort of like a uh, an individual who uh, rides racehorses commenting on football. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a completely different situation, and it winds up being, as I said a moment ago, a kind of a hearsay thing. They don't really have the direct experience, the direct practice, 
and they don't really see the results that actually do happen from good medication management. So then as a result, then they say, they say things that really are kind of uh, public opinion more than experience opinion. Same thing happened, as I said, on depression. They were ranting about uh, antidepressants not working. Well, that isn't my experience. If my experience is, however, and I know a number of my psychopharmacologic colleagues would agree, if the medications are not used correctly, then there are significant problems. And, and that is a serious problem in this country, is using the science and really thinking about the medications definitively and using them precisely. That's, that is a big problem. Right. And, you know, I, I don't want to go off topic, but I do want to just ask you, since you brought up antidepressants, there, I think it came out today, um, the study that said that, and I don't want to misquote, but it, the, the inference was that um, there isn't a higher risk of suicide or suicidal thinking in children and teens that use antidepressants. What, is your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that gets into the complexity question that you and Dr. Francis were talking about uh, the issue there is that there, these, in, these uh, different diagnostic categories are not just one-trick ponies. I mean, a person can be depressed, but they can have other issues going on that are running parallel with the depression. Something we see very frequently in our office on second, third opinions is the fact that an individual, child or adult, who has a depression on the surface is also suffering from something like attention deficit disorder. If, an, if a depressed person has an unrecognized attention deficit disorder and is given a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor actually downregulates the effectiveness of the dopamine and mm -hmm. aggravates the uh, impulsivity and right. aggravates the unmanageable cognitive abundance. The person feels more and more out of control. And then what happens, uh, several different things can happen. One of them would be that they could become suicidal. We've seen it happen numerous times. Mm -hmm. Or they could become emotionally volatile. Then they'll call them bipolar. Or they might just get successfully treated, recognize the comorbid attention deficit disorder, and find the balance between the dopamine, dopamine and serotonin by adjusting the medications correctly. You know, we're going to go into. Um, I have a few. I have some questions that I think parents would ask if they had the opportunity, and we're going to discuss that a little bit um, later. You know, to me, it was just. Um, you know, it was it was good to hear that children and teens don't have a higher risk, but I just want parents to be aware that there is always that risk, and um, that they should be aware of it. Um, you know, I think it's a good thing. I think it's very helpful for, for a lot of teens. Um, you know, so. Listen, parents need to be cautious. It's While we're on that subject, let me interrupt for just a moment and, and make my recommendation to you and your audience about how the question should be asked to resolve concerns about possible suicide depression. And that is if a person is depressed, I think there are several different types of depression that aren't commonly addressed. Uh, one of them uh, that I wrote about in the book is called, I call it the Clint Eastwood depression. And this is from uh, Gran Torino. High Plains Drifter, the good, the bad, and the ugly. These people, Clint in that situation has a cognitive depression and apathy and indifference. He's not a crybaby. And if, uh, you know, his wife might have sent him in for to a psychiatrist for an evaluation, and he would say, hey, I want to tell you really clearly I'm not depressed. But 
that those people who have that kind of cognitive apathy and indifference very frequently do respond well to antidepressants. So first of all is recognizing the depression, but then once you're going through and you have some impression of having um, uh, an understanding that the person might be depressed, I think it's important to ask the suicide question very carefully and not at all capriciously. And that would be instead of saying, have you ever thought about killing yourself? Uh, implying would you do it? Uh, the, the quick answer to that is no. But if you phrase it in a cognitive way, in a thinking manner, even though you wouldn't do it, have you ever thought about it before? That opens the door for a person to say yes, and then you can talk about the frequency of thinking about it. And it becomes a more serious matter because uh, that's my arch enemy in my office. I tell folks we're going to get rid of that guy one way or another. And, you know, through not just through medication, medication is one intervention, but thinking about harming yourself is, is people say, well, it's ubiquitous. Well, it, it's, it's an indication of an underlying problem and really shouldn't be there if the problem's resolved correctly. Right. You know, I want to go back to, um, to the article. Um, and I don't want to fan any flames. I, I really don't. But, you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking this is not just insulting to me personally. Um, and other parents, but I found it to be um, insulting to physicians. Oh, I, I think so, definitely. I, I quite agree with you. I've, uh, I became incensed this way. I was running around the Internet looking what everybody else was saying. It was really preparing to do an article, and I just had too many things on my plate to sit down and bang out an article myself. I was pleased to uh, get a hold of Ned Hollowell and see his article and uh, saw a number of it was other a great article. Yeah. It was a great article. He did a good job yeah, with that. Very good. And people, if people want to read that, they can get it at nedhollowell.com. Then uh, the Child Mind Institute, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Harold Kopowitz did a very good article on it and really covered a number of issues. Uh, quoted, uh, you know, Rachel Klein, who's uh, an ADHD researcher, saying that, uh, you know, there are no no promises on these medications. They uh, you, the medications do work, but we don't have to necessarily know how they work to to give them. And she talked about um, aspirin. You know, the, even until recently, we still don't exactly know how aspirin works, but we use it quite effectively. So not knowing how the medication works does not exclude it from ordinary use. And I think the thing that uh, – in sense, the number of the individuals in looking around at the comments were the fact that we do practice good medicine. People are concerned and, and really care about the children they have in their office most of the time. Some don't, but most do. They try to dial the medication in as effectively as they can. And really what we do see in contra- contradistinction to what uh, the doctor was saying in the New York, New York Times piece, we see people get better. We see them get, In fact, one of the things about Stimulant medications is, and, and I've talked about this quite a bit, is is that they get so much better so quickly and so easily that people are capricious in using them. They don't really think about them as carefully as they should because, hey, they just work too well too often. So the, so the average person who's doing this, who's a psychopharmacologist, who's practicing medicine and really interested in attention deficit disorder, uh, they they would have a significant difference of opinion. With uh, can you, 
one of I think one of the, the problems, and you know, Dr. Francis brought this up, and um, I'm not knocking you know pediatricians and general practitioners, but um, you know, I don't really think that they have the training and that they understand the comorbidity. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times general practitioners are, are prescribing um, stimulants and other medications, and you know, I don't know if that's such a great idea. Well, Dr. Francis did. I think that's a very accurate observation. And in, in my experience in speaking with people around the country is that, and again, this is no disrespect to any group, but what happens is individuals who have certain elements of training look at problems from that perspective of their training. They don't really look oftentimes at it as comprehensively as they should. Now, a pediatrician who loves ADD, loves psychopharmacology, they're going to ask all the right questions. And you know, in speaking with you offline, and you're, you're lucky to be in a situation where your the care in your family is done by individuals who really think comprehensively. But right. a lot of people in the country, my my own experience in talking to pediatricians and doing second uh, and third opinions downstream from pediatricians, is that they frequently get the ADHD diagnosis, but they frequently don't get or are uncomfortable with the depression diagnosis that very frequently is just hanging out there right in their face. And so what happens is they treat the person with a stimulant medication, and by the by, the problem with using a stimulant medication with a depression, guess what happens? Using a stimulant with a depression only aggravates the associated depression, and again, you can have people become angry, dangerous, crying, unhappy in the afternoon. Uh, in a, if it's in a uh, more mild effect, I call it the wily Coyote effect. Basically, a person has a significant depression. They didn't have a depression before they started. It wasn't obvious. It may be a Clint Eastwood kind of manifestation. Then they get the stimulant on board, and they crash hard in the afternoon. Well, what's happened is the dopaminergic medication is downregulated, the serotonin, the depression is aggravated, and bingo, you got a whole problem there. So pediatricians tend to go down that side. If they if they make a mistake, that's the mistake they frequently make. And adult psychiatrists who have no training in child psychiatry are little and who may not even be interested in it frequently fail in adults to make the comorbid attention deficit disorder diagnosis with the results that I was talking about a moment ago. It's just very common. Right. And, you know, that was actually, we, you touched upon a couple of the questions I was going to ask you later, so maybe we'll, I'll flip the way I was going to do the interview. Um, you know, I, I don't think any of us are naive. Um, you know, do I think that medications are over-prescribed to children? Absolutely. Um, do I think that there are people that misuse them? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. But there are children that are helped with these medications. Um, you know, and I think that um, one of the problems is that, um, you know, I, I really had a bit of an eye-opener because, as you were saying, we spoke before the interview, and I'm very fortunate. I mean, you know, the, 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 the professionals that I'm dealing with really take a very comprehensive view of children that are struggling. And, um, you know, it, it, it is no secret here um, that it is not going to be a magic pill, that it is going to be a comprehensive approach, that it's going to be different therapies, that you're going to have to change your parenting style. Um, you know, so but from what I'm hearing, I'm very fortunate that that's really not the case. And you were saying that you find that, that you're getting the second, third, fourth um, opinions. So yeah. what is, you know, what is the problem with... What do parents have to look for 
um, you know, when they go in, when they first go in to have their child checked? And how can they feel comfortable? I mean, I, I, I personally feel that children are not, I do agree, children are not getting a thorough evaluation. We're going to talk about estrogen dominance, hormones, and immune function in a little while. But, I mean, that wound up being my daughter's problem. And, you well, know, it, 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 was, it was missed. Well, you know, one of the things that happens is a, an individual who, who loves what they're doing, I mean, what I think, and, and Dr. Francis, again, referring back to him, he hit this quite squarely on the head. I thought he did a really good job. He said, you know, people are, somewhere down the road, people are going to take an interest in what they're doing, and they'll separate out the people who are not interested in what they're doing and, and seek help from those who are curious, interested, in, and really involved in the necessity of precision with, using uh, psych medications as opposed to just throwing them around. Now, one of the problems, again, I'm being careful when I say this because I don't want to condemn everybody uh, that's, that's not thinking about it. The medications are very forgiving for the most part. They tend mm-hmm. to have good results. And because of the cloudy diagnosis uh, situation that goes on with the DSM-4 and the forthcoming DSM-5, uh, we're not really thinking about the science and we're not really thinking about get this, we're not thinking about brain function. We're thinking about appearances. Human beings enter psychiatric offices. They enter pediatricians' offices, family practice offices, and they are diagnosed based on how they look, based on how they look, not how they are reporting their brain is functioning. Now, yes, some psychologists will help you with how their brain is functioning, certainly Neuropsychologists will help out that, will be more precise in, in diagnostic activities. But quite often a person is diagnosed, again, by how they look. Whether you know, It's sort of like saying, you know, you're blonde, we're going to treat you this way. You know, you're a redhead, we treat right. you this way. And that is what's going on. Now, since that's the standard in the land right now with the current diagnostic coding system, it's perfectly reasonable to have a standard of care which is imprecise. Because we're just going to say, well, we just use this medication for blondes and we just use this medication for redheads. That's the standard of care in 2012. And I do think that's abominable. That's something to really be upset about. And that's when people like uh, Dr. Shrove come in and, and, and say a few words because they pick up on the derivatives of it a little bit. They don't really know what's causing it. They kind of rant a little bit about things without even really, in, in a way, knowing precisely what they're talking about. And, uh, and except to say that, and I do agree with him on this, he says there's really not an, a good science. And, I mean, all of us are saying the same thing, Dr. Francis, Dr. Shrove. I agree with him. We're all saying that right. science is, is, uh, is missing very frequently when we're doing this. Right. And I think that was what um, he was really trying to state in the article. And I, and, and I give him credit for that because it really is. Um, nobody knows the long-term effects. I mean, really, I mean, how could we? But, you know, I I, I liked the analogy. Um, Dr. Hallowell um, did an analogy. I think it's for the Ferrari. Are you familiar with it? Yes, I like that, too. Go ahead and tell Yeah, that's a good one. No, go ahead. Go tell them, because I, I, I read it, but I, I don't think I could do it justice. Well, he says, he, he, you know, he used the point and, and actually goes to the point of so many people with attention deficit disorder have what I've called an unmanageable cognitive abundance now, you know, Thank goodness Ned Hollowell didn't go that far with it. He just said their mind is racing, it's zooming around, and they're having a hard time controlling it. So they have like a really speedy, high-test Ferrari that's zooming around. And what they don't have is they 
they don't have the adequate brakes. In fact, they're running bicycle brakes on a Ferrari. And so what happens is that the course of treatment, metaphorically speaking, is to improve the braking system so that the prefrontal cortex can dampen down that drive that's coming up from deeper structures, and a person can think before they act. They can get things done instead of thinking about it forever and spinning their wheels, and they can step up rather than avoid the situation. They can step up to it and, and address the issue rather than putting it off. And that is so true. And uh, parents that are out there listening, I know you're laughing because that is so true. In my house, we call it no breaks. So when I read it, I mean, I laughed because it's it's just so accurate. But, you know, so what do you do about that? I mean, you say you have these kids that are, like you said, in appearance, presenting as ADHD, having trouble focusing, having no breaks, having regulatory issues. And a lot of them, you give them a stimulant and... They don't do well. I mean, so what What do you learn from a reaction from a stimulant if they worsen in any way? Is there is that any gauge of what the dysregulation is? Oh, absolutely. Pardon me for getting a little excited and interrupting you there. But, I mean, I, that to me is where I kind of live and breathe because uh, I, I love that. We see so many people that don't just pop into a nice little turnaround with an easy dose of medication. We do try with every medication adjustment throughout the practice and the people that I've trained to use the duration of effectiveness as a key to whether the medication is working as it should be expected to work. So, for example, if a person's on an Adderall immediate release, for example, it should really, the half-life on that, meaning that the duration that it should work is somewhere around five hours. Well, we see people come in on immediate release Adderall where they've cranked it up to maybe whatever, 30 in the morning, and they have a burn rate to uh, to try to get through school on an immediate release medication, and they're coming out of the medication around 3 or 4 in the afternoon, going far beyond the expected duration of effectiveness. Well, when they do that, that person's toxic all day. They're not adequately adjusted on the medication. When they're toxic, what happens is their head, their thinking process, comes out the top of the therapeutic window. And so while they had racing before, they can even have greater racing, more impulsivity, because they're actually having side effects of medications not adjusted correctly. And that's just a quick example. So getting the So, so are you saying then it's the, it's the adjustment of the dose? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That is okay. absolutely key. So, I, mean, I, I can't tell you the number of, people that I see who come in, I ask, well, what's the duration of effectiveness? I don't really say, how long does it work? I ask it in, you know, in, in plain language. When do you take it? How long does it work? That's the question. I'm like a broken record. I ask that all day, every day. I ask it with people I've been seeing because I want to know if the uh, duration of effectiveness actually changes for some reason, which puts them over into what I call a roving therapeutic window. So if they're, if they're come out of the window and I've done everything right and they're doing everything right and they're getting their sleep and having a protein breakfast, but the window's moving around and then it becomes an imperative for me to kind of chase the window by continuously adjusting the medication, then I, the way I look at that, I'm not doing something right. I've missed a dimension in that person. I've missed a metabolic dimension that's causing that roving window to take place. And that's when I have to ask the questions more precisely. And that, that, that gets pretty interesting at that point. 
And, you know, another factor that parents need to um, know about um, is that gene expression really affects presentation. And, and my daughter, um, she has OCD. She has teretic OCD, which is mm-hmm. very different than other forms of OCD. It has to mm-hmm. be treated differently. The, the best treatment for her is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the, everything expresses itself differently. So the, one of the parents' biggest fears is the medication cocktail. You know, I call it the, the medication roller coaster. Yep. And Oftentimes what happens is that, and and I'm going to use stimulants as an example, but, you know, this could happen with other medications too, that sometimes, you know, you give a stimulant, and as you said, it affects the other neurotransmitters, so now you're affecting the serotonin, you're affecting the dopamine, you can have problems now with mood and anxiety, so another medication is thrown on top. I mean, an, an easy one for you to probably help to explain this would be ticks. A lot of kids... They, not a lot, but some kids that go on stimulants will develop ticks. So, you know, how does a parent balance um, the improvement in focus, attention, and regulation with now an onset of ticks? Well, that one, you'll have to have me back for about three entire one-hour sessions on that one. Okay. <laughs> Aren't you but glad no, I asked no, simple the simple questions? It, it's a little complicated, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and box it up a little bit and make it easy. Here's the deal. We we currently measure neurotransmitters as biomarkers in my office, and it, it's controversial, but but uh, I'm happy to go on record as saying that I do it because, hey, it works. It's as simple as that. I mean, the theory can be there, and people will say, you know, there are some people in the country say it shouldn't work, it doesn't work that way, that's not correct, it's not an accurate representation of brain, whatever. But the bottom line is if you use some careful diagnostic tools to get pure, the best evidence you can, whereas this evidence doesn't exist if you don't do this test, then you can begin to think about what's going on. And this is so we we really look at 12 neurotransmitters. Now, some people say there are only two neurotransmitters you can really look at, and that's the the neurotransmitter derivative of serotonin, the neurotransmitter derivative of dopamine, and those Mm -hmm. tell you what's going on. I'm getting... A little deep, and I apologize, but the bottom line well, what is... What about that, norepinephrine? That can't be measured? No, you, you, you can measure it, but uh, the, debate, the, the debate amongst the people who are doing this is that some say that, that just measuring norepinephrine... In fact, in fact, many say that urinary neurotransmitters are not adequate measurements and, and are not uh, accurately representational of what's going on. So, and, so then... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. You go ahead. No, I was going to say, so then, you know, basically, um, if you do get an exacerbation of one problem or an onset of one problem um, with the stimulant, would that dictate more of taking them off the stimulant, or is it yes, wiser for a parent to add something? Yes, absolutely. Our, what, what we wind up doing is, first of all, when a person has an unpredictable result based on, like I was talking to you about the roving therapeutic window, but the other, another untoward result would be a tick disorder from a stimulant medication. That's, that's an unpredictable result. I mean, you could say, well, hey, they're getting a stimulant medication. It's perfectly predictable that people have tick disorders. Well, not everybody does. So right. if right. they do have it, then my question is, What's causing it? So then we look more deeply into it, and when you look at the balance of the neurotransmitters very frequently, I just saw a kid today, this afternoon, the last person I saw before I came home, was a guy that had a very significant elevation in dopamine. So his dopamine was elevated. He was uh, not 
not well responsive to the stimulant medications. He was doing better with the stimulant medications, had a slight tick disorder as a matter of fact, but the main issue that was revealed in that initial look was the fact that he had a very significant immune system dysregulation. And with that immune system dysregulation, and we have a number of good peer-reviewed articles on on how the cytokines from the immune system dysregulation, they're the chemical messengers that get fired up when the immune system is dysregulated. Actually, they compete at the neuroreceptor sites, for at the neurotransmitter sites for the other neurotransmitters. So what you have is you have molasses thrown into the brain, metaphorically speaking, of course, and what happens, things don't work as predictably. Same thing as like uh, smoking marijuana. You, somebody's smoking marijuana, you're trying to get them straight with a stimulant medication, it's not going to happen. You're just going to be, because you can't actually see how the stimulant is working in the context of the marijuana abuse. It's, just, it's, it's impossible to do. I mean, I've tried it a few times, I can tell you, and it just doesn't work. We have to work with the person to really reduce and ultimately get off of the, off of the weed. I can get thing. I can get the males I can get the males off the weed right now. The study came out that males that smoke um pot on a regular basis have a double to triple um increase uh risk of testicular cancer. Is that right? Yeah, that I heard should, five that should times. take care of it. <laughs> well, you're going right to the testicle girls. I I mean, I mean to the girl and I would say that the deal would be they also have five times the incidence of lung cancer. That's true. That's so you true. got the lung cancer, you got the testicles. I mean, this would be a reason for a guy to really think about it. Right. No question so now, about it. But um, back you, to you what mentioned. We were, a, go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was going to well, say. Well, I was just going to back to the other thing on the, on, the, on the tick disorder. What's the immune system? Well, we really measure IgG. I mean, uh, immunoglobulin G is, is a, a very interesting marker. That I don't think everyone knows what that is. I know what it is because my daughter had pandas, but um, why don't you explain what that is? Well, there are a number of immunoglobulins, and, and just to make it really simple, two of them. One's IgE, which is easily remembered because you can kind of think of it and remember it as an Ig emergency. So, if, if Marianne, if you had a couple of shrimp and started to swell up and get hives, and you started choking, you went on, went into a, a collapse on the floor. That would be an emergency. That would be a very quick reaction. It'd be an allergic reaction to shrimp that you could almost die from. That's mm-hmm. an IgE. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens with IgG, it's a different type of antibody reaction with a different set of antibodies. They don't react in 24, 48 hours. So if you have let's, some of the most common ones, the literature and the, and the popular press is loaded with gluten. Gluten is a food that causes very significant IgG reactions. Well, the average person listening to this program and say, who cares? Why would I care about that? Well, if you're wondering why the medicine isn't working, this is an absolutely key point. So what happens is, so they're eating wheat. The wheat uh, sends off an immune system dysregulation, but it doesn't occur in the 24, 48 hours. So if they have it on Monday, it doesn't occur through up until the next Monday. It may occur with a reaction the following Wednesday that's completely unrelated in their minds. It's 10 days out. It's like an under-the-radar under stealth bomber corrupting the neurotransmitter systems within the body. So, and, and a lot of my colleagues say, well, Parker, why do you measure that? I mean, who cares about IgG? Well, most of my medical colleagues are not concerned about IgG because they're not dealing with chronic illness. 
they're dealing with acute illness. IgE is the, is the, is the focus for a person concerned about acute illness, as it should be. So, but what happens is with our practice, we see people that everybody else has seen, and they said they're not fixable. There's something weird going on. We don't know what it is, but they probably have a mental problem. So we'll send them down to you. And then we go over, and their IgG is off the charts. So this particular kid that I started the story on, his histamine was out the top. His dopamine was out the top. Norepinephrine and epinephrine were both out the top. So he was agitated, touchy, sensitive. Glutamate, which is a very important brain neurotransmitter, yeah. was high. And when anybody, it doesn't matter whether the person is a 35-year-old woman or a 17-year-old kid, they are cranky and angry when their glutamate is up, and very frequently it's up secondary to immune system dysregulation. Happens. And is that always is that always the Wheaton? No. The gluten? Uh, is that always uh, the gluten? Uh, it's very frequently wheat. I call it, in my office, I call it the New Jersey trifecta. And the New Jersey trifecta, I don't know where I got the term New Jersey. but probably I like these I little names you have there. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because I know you, I could call it the New York trifecta. But, but the bottom <laughs> line is the trifecta in a horse race is when you predict the first, second, third place horses and you win a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And in my office, I can predict the most frequent one in my office that is a common, the most common without a doubt is milk casein. The second one, surprisingly, because everybody would think, well, okay, you got milk off and wheat's the next one. No, the next one is eggs by far. And wheat comes up a slow third in my office with the IgG testing I'm doing. And by the way, I want to just emphasize this. Well, some of, some of your listeners may say, well, Parker, you know, I've done, I've done IgG testing. My doctor did IgG testing. A lot of the docs do what's called quantitative IgG testing rather than qualitative. So what they do is they look at a big number and say from uh, looking at this number in its totality, which is quantitative, you don't have an IgG problem. But when you break that down and look at the specific subsets of food, it's clear they do. You change the diet and dog on it, they wind up getting better, which then changes the therapeutic window from moving around and you can precisely dose the medication, and you're on a you're on a different plane. You're just in a completely different playing field. Um, I, I, I get so nervous whenever anybody starts talking about the eggs and the because I'm terrible. I've tried to eliminate that. I think we made it like a day. Um, it's if hard we to do. I've had, I've had people you, on. Yeah, but I think see, I don't think you should do. My own feeling is I'm really against elimination diets for that very reason. You, the person doesn't know what they're doing with an elimination diet, so it's very hard to convince even a well-educated person like yourself that it's a problem. You might have a little problem with eggs, but your problem might be, I mean, obviously I haven't talked to you about this, but your problem with eggs might be a little bit of an IgE problem, but we don't know whether you have that chronic debilitating IgG problem, which is really messing with your neurotransmitters until we measure it. Well, I have a daughter who we monthly are in the ER with anaphylactic shock over something. So uh, I would assume then that maybe I should get this testing done. Um, but, you know, with my other daughter, um, you know, we, we had all of this testing done, so I was, you know, very familiar with it. But um, the next thing I want to move on to before we go back a little bit to the article, and then we have some callers here if you'd like to take some calls, um, is it infuriates me that um, and there aren't endocrine uh, panels done a real endocrine panel, a real endocrine evaluation on these girls. 
My daughter wound up with estrogen dominance. When we treated, um, when we treated her hormones, I had a different kid. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you. I can tell you story after story, and that that implies that it's not true. I mean, an actual report. I can report an actual office happening with individuals. I have an ASD girl that came in and she had a um, an inherited um, endocrine dominance, um, estrogen uh, estrogen dominance. It was an endocrine problem, and uh, she would get psychotic. Amongst other things, she also had a very severe immune system dysregulation. Her neurotransmitters were my world. <laughs> when I thought when she came in, I honestly thought, Marianne, that she was going to be. I couldn't. I thought I'm just not going to be able to fix this girl. I mean, I'm a very confident guy. I have like a good track record. I'm like, this is going to be tough. I'm going to have to work with this mother. She's she's going to have to be institutionalized. She's scratching her face. Has a tick disorder. She's got acne all wow. over her face and her chest. You know, she's got PCOS, polycystic ovarian. Right. But they. I say that in retrospect. They didn't report that to me on the front end, but when I asked the questions, I mean, we chased that down, and that's what she had. But the bottom line is, by getting her estrogen dominance corrected, and we did it with an endocrinologist. I don't. I stay within my right. realm of what I know, but oh, I, do, absolutely. Absolutely. I do work hard to figure out what I don't know and what I need to chase down. So right. we sent her to a pediatric endocrinologist, and we got the, we worked as a team. And she wound up going, she was in the beginning of her senior year in high school, homebound. And she wound up going back to school and went to the ring dance and graduated with her class. Yep. And, and one it's, of the it's, things it's that incredible. was going on. It's, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. Sunday I have on Monica Wolski, who um, is my guru. Um, she is my mentor for polycystic ovarian syndrome, which my daughter also has, very commonly found with these problems. And she's going to be on Sunday, and I yeah. I, I cannot tell you how excited I am because oh, I am cool. finding this over and over where these kids are being diagnosed with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar disorder, and it's an endocrine problem. And, you know, it's very obvious there are physical symptoms, but, you know, let's move forward. We're going to go through that Sunday. But, um, you know, what... In the article, let's get back to the article a little bit. There was he he quoted some studies, and there's some debate about whether they were recent, um, you know, who who they were done by. So, what were these studies that were predicting that they do not work long term, and that actually, um, if I read it correctly, it's worsening when they come off? Well, here's the thing. First of all, that's. I, I don't know about those studies. I mean, I got five studies right here in my hands. I was prepared for this whole thing. I mean, they got his idea that they've done quote unquote no long term studies. They have a couple long term studies up to two years for adults. They've got a different uh, studies for different uh, subsets of stimulant medications: one for methylphenidate products and one for amphetamine products with children of a year. So they've done very lengthy studies in spite of the fact that they're extremely costly, hard to control. So we know what's going on. Now, why do the people have a reaction when they come off the medication? Well, there are multiple reasons, just like as we were talking about a moment ago when we were saying how come these medications are working in this odd way. Well, if we really understand the neurobiology of the situation, those uh, those psychotropic medications are really collecting the neurotransmitters that are present within the body. They're actually collecting them on the synaptic level. 
So if they collect the neurotransmitters on the synaptic level and they take them off, the same thing happens with serotonin. Um, you know, uh, I started to say serotonin syndrome, but it's serotonin discontinuation syndrome is what I was trying mm-hmm. to say. They drop off, and because the neurotransmitter receptors have actually been down-regulated and modified based on the fact that the the specific neurotransmitters have been collected, they have to get re-upregulated. And during that period of time, the down-regulation and re-upregulation of the of the postsynaptic receptors, they can get crazy. But the downstream of that is a person can get pretty crazy. So there is right. a rebound. That doesn't mean they're addicted, nor does it mean they're addicted to serotonin when they have serotonin discontinuation syndrome. It means, and it is accurate, that they have a problem with the number of available neurotransmitters in their system. And we've, since we've been testing neurotransmitters, we see it happen regularly. I can pretty well tell a person if they say, oh, my gosh, let's take quickly take it off of stimulants for just a second and say effects or XR. Well, they're on effects or XR, and they go off of effects or XR, and they fall apart, and they have two months of discontinuation syndrome. My quick conclusion, until proven otherwise, is that they have two two little serotonin present that the uh, postsynaptic receptors have been downregulated by the previous selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor where they're loading the system, and it's taken that long for them to to come back and re-upregulate. Why? Because they don't have enough serotonin in their system, and when we measure it, that's exactly what's going on. They're very, very brittle. They don't have any flexibility. It's like the same thing as the therapeutic window principle, they don't have any room to play with it because they don't have enough doggone neurotransmitters in their system. And then what and happens? Know, Chase it no, down, they have an immune system dysregulation, which nobody's asked about. Well, that's that's where I was going, and it affects the immune system. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and it's just, it becomes just such a vicious cycle. And, you know, I mean, like I said, I'm fortunate that, um, you know, I, I have out-of-the-box thinking going on, um, you know, for my child. And, you know, omegas at the right Ratio the four to one with the EPA DHA and inositol also I don't know how you feel about it but there's a lot of talk about inositol that it's um, very helpful for serotonin OCD depression. Oh yeah, so, um, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the supplements help in a lot of different ways. What right. I think is really important is to understand clearly how each one of those supplements facilitates exactly different actions exactly. as opposed to hey it's worked for some people take B vitamins hey it's worked for some people. I know your people don't do this. I'm just telling you what what I, right. what I see out there in the field. It's like, okay, well, the oh, I agree because you can you can tell a parent go get some omegas, give your child omega oil, and they go to the you know to the uh, food store and they pick up a bottle and you know it has a, a DHA level um, at higher or too high, and you're going to have a kid that's going to get you know what appears to be manic and agitated. Because it's the wrong ratio. That's why, you know, it's important to know what you're doing. And inositol, you know, raises uh, serotonin. So, you know, it's a nice option. Um, a lot of doctors now try that first line with young children instead of the medications. Because, as you said, you know, the, the medications that these kids take cause other problems. I mean, you take the neuroleptics. And um, if you have a, a child like mine um, that has an endocrine problem, it's going to worsen the problem. And the neuroleptics are going to worsen the behaviors, because the behaviors were the root was endocrine. Yeah. So, you know, 
Um, it's, it's, like, so it's like you're treating something. It's sort of like if there's any kind of a problem that has a brain derivative, then mm-hmm. we're going to throw it at the brain. And, you know, one of my favorite points here is that so many people forget the fact that the food has to travel through the body to get to the brain. I mean, it's just right. it's an amazing, basic, simple common sense point if the food has to travel through the body to get to the brain why don't we understand what's going on with the body that it has to go through i mean that's simple right now it's it's a complex question but it's it's a simple observation because i can remember you saying but why does every medication we try make her worse something's not right you know, everything shouldn't make her worse. And, you know, wound up that that's not what she needed. Um, and she does. She does um, take Lexapro now, um, a very low dose. But, I mean, the drugs that were initially thought she was going to need, I mean, it wasn't the case. But so see, I'll tell you another thing. Without knowing your target? daughter, and obviously I'm just doing armchair psychiatry and just guessing, but mm-hmm. what happened was somewhere in the course of the work, the immune system and the endocrine system dysregulations got straightened out. When they did that, her therapeutic window became more predictable. So you right. could move in with a medication, titrate it properly because you were working with a larger area in the ther- therapeutic window as opposed to a very brittle person which had compromised neurotransmitters in the first place. Right. And like Dr. Alan Francis said, people that have classic presentations and classic forms of different disorders these drugs are like miracles and I, I don't use that word but you know that's what he had basically said that you know if you have somebody with schizophrenia and you give them you know um risperdal or abilify it's going to help them tremendously if you Absolutely. have somebody that has straight depression you give them an antidepressant it's going to help them tremendously it's these blurs which are basically our children that are the problem so how close are we getting any closer to targeting treatments with um brain scans or or anything else? I mean, other than trial and error, and you know I call it throwing darts at butterflies. Are we getting any closer to <laughs> Well, here's the uh, thing targeting? about brain scans. I you know, had the privilege of working with Eamon, and uh, he's a very controversial guy. Uh, brain scans are oh, useful like in, certain, right. in certain instances. I mean, why are they useful? Because it's additional evidence. They are expensive. I think that brain scans now where, where I am uh, professionally, I can do a brain scan. I can read a brain scan. Um, I, we do them occasionally from time to time under certain circumstances. But I think that the future of psychiatry in the next 10 years is going to be understanding neurophysiology on a, on a molecular and cellular level. That, that is the future of psychiatry. There's no question about it. And, and everybody's going to be doing it in 10 years. And, uh, it's, and it's going to be It's more and more fun. It's been more fun for me. I've been, I've been doing it for a long time. I didn't get it right for a long time. I mean, I got it as right as I could in the context of what I knew. But what's mm-hmm. going on now is I wind up getting it more right, and nothing's 100% in medicine. wish it was, but it's not. But we get it more right because we're using better, improved evidence on a molecular and cellular level, and that does beat the pictures from brain scans. Right. You know, I had Dr. Henslin on um, actually last year, and it was He's just really... He's a great really guy, isn't he? He oh he's just fantastic, um, and it really you know it it's it, it there are so many advances being made which is you know also why, you know the whole DSM five but that was obviously another show. Um, listen, we're going to take some calls, but before we do, I want you to do two things. I want you to really just talk to parents um, about the article, um, what they should take from it, and what they should just you know, not worry about so much, and then let them know about your blog. And then I want to take a few calls. And if we go off the air, everybody um, is going to play um, full-in archive. So um, 
Dr. Parker, what would you say to parents about the well, article? Well, the very first thing is that I would encourage them to read it. I, based on our conversation here, Marianne, and, and what we're talking about, I think to in, encourage individuals to join the conversation and see, take, think about what we said and see whether uh, our perspective, whether Dr. Uh, 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 Dr. Francis didn't comment on it, but you can see what he's talking about. The real issue is imprecision, and you can see from that article what happens with imprecise thinking because speculation arises and just blossoms like a dog on mushroom in a, in a dark closet. And what happens is when we have the science, we're getting much more accurate, and, and things are predictable. And if there's anything I could say about, about reading it and then thinking about it and contemplating this conversation is uh, I don't think it's um, at all unreasonable to say people should have significantly improved hope with the uh, new science discoveries that are taking place. I mean, it isn't mm-hmm. false hope. We're not building anything anything false. I haven't said nothing, I haven't said anything's uh, a categorically correct. You know, this is the only way to do it. This is wonderful. It's perfect. Nothing's perfect, but the issue is we should use the evidence that's available, communicate effectively about it, try it, and then see where we go from there as opposed to wringing our hands and and kind of condemning some of these things that that really um, don't need condemnation at all, that that really work if you think about it. Right, right. Well, you write an amazing blog. <clears throat> I love it. I follow it. I pass it around. Where can um, people go to find it? You're very kind. Uh, Core Psych blog, and it's it's uh, the psych. Some people want to put the e on it so they lose it, but it's Core C O R E P S Y. Ch blog dot com and okay. uh, you know I, you know it, I, I think it's a, I've been trying to drive at the core of things I think what uh, what I've been writing about for almost six years now and I've just been saying hey public let's get together and really talk about this more and uh, invite comments we have some blog posts on Intuitive for example when we we're talking about glutamate and Intuitive we never quite got around to that part of the conversation but. Right. Uh, that have more than 200 comments on it because people are joining in the conversation and looking at what's going on with these refractory children that don't get well the way they should, that didn't respond well to stimulants, and people are looking for alternatives. And how do you actually uh, titrate? How do you adjust the dose on Intuitive? I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about things like that. So, yeah, and then brain scans, we've commented on that. But uh, the, the main issue where we're going is is trying to inform the public. I think if the public is informed and we enlarge the conversation, that's why I love being on with you, Marianne, because I think it just starts the conversation, enhances the conversation. Right. And I think it's so reassuring for parents, too, um, because, you know, we talk to each other all the time. Uh, but it's very reassuring when someone like you comes on because, you know, one thing we didn't discuss, but one of the things that drew me to you, the reason I found you, was because um, I just am... Very stuck on anxiety being the core of many, many of the problems these kids are having, and the anxiety just not really being dealt with at all. Um, you know, and I think that um, parents really need to take the time to unravel this, and the best way to do it is to work in a partnership with the doctors that are treating your child 
and just find out what it is. I mean, you know, there are children. I just did an interview. I just taped an interview. I'm, I started a new show. It's called Inspiring Parents. I'm so excited about it. And, um, you know, where I treat the parents as um, the experts. And, you know, here I had a, a, a parent whose child was being diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. She was like six years old, oppositional defiant disorder, bipolar disorder. Wound out, wound up she had uh, synesthesia. Mm-hmm. Synesthesia where she sees colors, words, music, I love that word. everything. Yeah, it, she sees everything in colors. So yes. it was so hard for her to relate to the world because she didn't read the same, she didn't think the same. And here it was that you know they were th- wanted to throw all of these medications at her, and it wound up she she's a gifted, she's twice exceptional. She had to learn how to think like other people think, and medications wouldn't have helped that. So mm-hmm. you know, listen, if your child needs medication, you have to look at it like a pair of glasses. It is not going to fix the problem, but it is going to make it a hell of a lot easier to see the world. So, you know, that's how you have to look at the medications, that it's not a cure, but some kids need it to have a quality of life. But you also have to do your due diligence, and you have to make sure that there is nothing else causing the problem. So I thank you for joining us. Um, We're not going to go off the air just yet. Um, Everyone can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com and specialneedstalkradio.com. I have all new shows that are just unbelievable. Please check it out. And I'm going to try to take some callers. Is that okay? I think we'll have time for one. Sure, Is that sure. okay? I'm happy to stay with you. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, area code 704. Oh, why am I wrong button? Um, area code 704, you still with us? I know you've been holding on for an hour. Hello? Are you there? I'm sorry. We have a bad connection. I can't hear you. It's breaking up a little bit, ma'am. Yeah, it is. I'll try another one. I apologize, uh, 704. Area code 732? Are you with us? Area code 7? Hi, how are you? Hi, good. Actually, I didn't have a question, but I'm surprised you can hear me. I'm sitting here washing my dishes. I heard that. uh, Um, Did I you think you say, had to call in to listen? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, uh, I called in to listen, and um, yeah, no, I really uh, I've been just so amazed at, at, at how wonderful this um, talk has been, and, and how enlightening. My son is only four years old, and we're debating, you know, whether to get him evaluated for ADHD, and um, he's already classified in a pre-K program, but. I'm just not sure about the medication if we're if we're gonna be going that route for kindergarten or not. Um, but uh, just all these questions are rumbling around in my head, and we're gonna be. It, know, it's so hard that. when they're that young, Doctor Parker. I mean, well, yeah, I think when they're younger like that, we see kids even two or three years old. But we mm-hmm. don't do medication at that age unless they're just completely dangerous to themselves or others. You know, jumping from a couch right. or out of the car or something, but. That's the time we can actually do something really simple, like you do urinary neurotransmitters, check out their immune system, and really and and really come in kind of the back door. The other thing is when you get around to, if you at some time in the future, sorry for doing a quick blatant plug here for the blog, but I've got a whole series of eight videos on how to adjust, how to understand medications and medication adjustment on the blog. So you can see it's an ADHD medication tutorial. So if you 
want to learn a little more about that, you can get that up there. But I I would start without medication on a child that age. And Well, how would you go about getting uh, tested for those levels and everything? I mean, I, I was going to get them tested at CHOP um, or maybe through a uh, private um, person, but no one had mentioned anything about, you know, having levels tested. Well, there are, at this time, honestly, there are not a lot of people doing it. I'm making a diligent effort this year to get started and train everybody I can and years that I've got remaining because it did just because it works and it doesn't work all the time but it works pretty frequently more frequently than not knowing what you're doing and so there's a company that that measures neurotransmitters and uh, I'll tell you the best thing to do would be to send an offline rather than mm-hmm. sounding self-promotional send me a thing and I'll and I'll and I'll hook you up with a company that does that and uh, if it's, you, it's not can, it's not something commonly done yeah it's not common. and you know no and you know mom to mom um, when you said originally that you want to have him evaluated for ADHD, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was like that too. I was having my daughter evaluated for Tourette's. I was having her evaluated for OCD. Mom to mom, what I would tell you is just have him mm-hmm. evaluated and okay. don't have any um, label in your head because yes. labels are not for kids. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so I've been doing this. I'm old. I've been doing this a long time. And if, if mm-hmm. I could say one thing to you, it would be just... You know, have them evaluated. You know, early intervention is key, but early intervention doesn't always need mean medication. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So good luck. Thank you for calling in. Thank, thank you. You're Oppositional defiant happens to be my pet peeve. I don't know. I used oh. you had just said something about it. You are my clone. I, I don't even believe there is. I'm telling you, I can't stand that diagnosis. I can tell you five right. things that cause oppositional defiant right now. Right. And you know, <laughs> one of them being constipation. Right. You always you know, like that. So mouth why give a kid a medication when you don't even know what's causing the problem? So give me a break. Right. And you always have to look for sensory issues in a young child too. I mean, sensory issues are huge, and people just think sensory issues are with uh, with autism, and it's not. There are so many um, other things that you know could be contributing to. I'm not saying that there isn't a chemical problem. I'm just saying that there are so many other things, and there are other things that whether or not it's chemical and you need medication, you'd have to do anyway. So you might as well start there. Um, but you know, it's it, this is not an easy road, and I think what really got me going. Um, with this was that you know I just really don't like stigma and you know don't even get me started with oppositional defiant disorder because you know I I was told 15 years ago some very great advice um with the doctor that said to me I don't know where they got it from it doesn't exist <laughs> it is just a horrible label to put on a child it's ridiculous um and it really is but you know really People have to really start respecting each other and respecting parents because this is not a this is not how can I say it, this is not for sissies and this is a very difficult and very emotional journey and no parent should be judged or blamed for their child's problems. Clearly, there are children that are not in good environments that are not you know that that don't have great parenting. Of course, there are those situations, but. By and large, most of these kids have issues, and we need to address the issues. And by attacking the parents is not the way to get results for these kids. So thank you for calling. Dr. Parker, a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for having me, Marianne. Really enjoyed talking to you as usual. And to the listeners, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here at the Coffee Clutch. Thank you for joining us. Good night.